Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome everybody to another IFG live. I'm Jill Rutter, I'm a senior fellow here, and today we're going to be talking about six months since power sharing was restored in Northern Ireland after a hiatus when Northern Ireland went without ministers for nearly three years. When Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill took office as First Minister and Deputy First Minister back in January, little did they think their first six months would be dominated by coping with a global pandemic. They probably thought that they would be focusing on readying Northern Ireland for its particular form of Brexit, dealing with the recommendations of the inquiry into the renewable heat incentive scandal, which triggered the collapse of the executive back in 2017, and addressing the giant intray of decisions that had built up when Northern Ireland was being run largely by the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Today, we want to look at the progress made since that restoration in January. Is the new approach promised in the deal that brought the power sharing executive back, new decade, new approach, materialising? Can we see signs that Northern Ireland is grappling with some of the long-term economic and public services issues that people in, the, in Northern Ireland were really concerned about when Jess Sargent and I wrote our report, Governing Without Ministers, last summer? Are the weaknesses exposed in the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry, whose report was finally published in uh, March, being addressed? And what does the future look like? Will Northern Ireland be governed better in the future? To discuss all that, I'm joined by a very distinguished panel. First of all, I have the Right Honourable Julian Smith MP. I hope he doesn't mind if I say that the cause of disapproval that accompanied his removal from office shortly after the deal he brokered was sign that it was a sign that he was the most effective Secretary of State for Northern Ireland for years. Uh, perhaps he was uh, moved on from doing his job too well, but he still retains a huge interest in what is going on. And then we have Anne Watt. Anne is Director of Pivotal, a think tank that was launched last year with a mission to fill one of the gaps people identified in the ecosystem of policymaking in Northern Ireland, that whereas in London we're used to a proliferation of think tanks, there are hardly any focusing on Northern Ireland. Professor Duncan Morrow is a lecturer in politics at Ulster University and a former chief executive of the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council. So we'll be asking him about how uh, lots of these changes are seen, not from the policymaking angle, but by the people that they affect. And last, but absolutely not least, Sam McBride, who is notable for being the author of my Christmas present, his book Burned, the readable version of the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry, political editor of the Belfast Newsletter, and Northern Ireland editor of the I Newspaper. So that's our panel. And we're going to go back, although we're focusing on the last six months, I want to wind us back to a year ago. Remember a year ago, Boris Johnson was just about to take the keys to Downing Street. And one of his best appointments, I think many might agree, was to ask Julian Smith to take on the role of Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So Julian, when you took up that role, uh, I don't know whether you were deeply excited to take it on. Um, what did you see your inheritance as? You came in with government stall, the talks going on, but in a fairly desultory way, uh, Northern Ireland's status in Brexit not resolved. So what did you make of the inheritance as you came into office in your first few days back in July last year? Well, Jill, I think it was a pretty uh, difficult time for Northern Ireland that the we're about two and a half years um, without any government. Government. It was the an ungoverned part of the United Kingdom, as your report said at the time. Uh, there were no ministerial decisions, and there'd been two, I think, historically interesting um, acts, which I think will become at the centre of some PhD focus at some point. The Northern Ireland Executive Formation Acts, um, which were holding together the direction and giving um, the civil service a bit more power uh, than uh, than they would have otherwise had to take decisions, but ungoverned uh, in terms of the normal sense of politicians being in charge. Nearly three thousand people uh, on waiting lists for healthcare. Um, there had been a talks process which had seen through two secretaries of state and which had uh, gone on since uh, Martin McGuinness collapsed the um, executive prior to the um, uh, 2017 election. 
And um, it was a, a very difficult situation. Westminster had also uh, taken back control of social uh, policy in terms of the um, same-sex marriage amendments that had been added to uh, the Executive Formation, Second Executive Formation Act and the abortion amendments. And, you know, uh, about a year prior, as Chief Whip, um, you know, you've been able to make the argument that Northern Ireland should sort this out itself. But uh, last year, I think, um, subject to free votes, um, Westminster MPs decided they wanted to do it themselves. So the inheritance was, it was pretty rocky. I think it was just a very difficult situation. Um, and, um, you know, I was very clear there was a, a lot to a lot to work on. So you clearly prioritised when you came in getting power sharing up and running. I just wanted to wondered if you could just talk us through actually how did you go about it and how hard was it was there a big appetite among the parties to say yeah actually we've been putting up with this for uh, for so long we really need to get back into power or were they quite reluctant to come to the table well I think the context first of all Jill was that um, we were with a, a new prime minister who had a strategy of um, no deal or a deal, but a bit a bit more focus on no deal. So one of the biggest challenges for, for me as Northern Ireland Secretary was to uh, try to get the talks process going because um, there was not a huge desire to have um, direct rule, nor did I think that was a good, a, a good situation um, for Northern Ireland. But uh, we were going towards the end of October uh, and, you know, not having governance in a no deal situation in my view, would have been um, pretty catastrophic. So the big focus was trying to get the talks uh, moving, um, and you know, I was I did that by by really trying to get under the skin of each of the five parties and develop uh, trust with them. However, I think uh, we still were in a situation where the DUP had power at Westminster through the Competence and Supply Agreement, and we're obviously not happy with the with the various iterations of the deal. Um, and uh, there was not the momentum uh, that uh, we needed to, to close the deal. But I was I, I was pushing hard in the in the summer last year, late summer last year. But you know it was not coming together in the way that we would have wanted. And I think was uh, you know we had Sinn Fein obviously not happy with Brexit, and other parties not happy with Brexit. To pay you know the smaller parties were more enthusiastic for talks. Um, but it was a very difficult situation, given that we could have ended up uh, in no deal without uh, ministerial decision making. Duncan, I'm just sort of intrigued as to you know what it felt like on the ground in Northern Ireland. Was there a sort of you know public frustration at their politicians? Any sort of expectation that new Secretary of State would get the executive up and running relatively quickly? Uh, well, I think there had been mounting evidence uh, really in the year 2019 about deep frustration of the absence of government. There was an event in the cathedral after uh, Lyra McKee was killed when the politicians appeared really isolated when a priest from the altar basically said, why are you not talking already? And it looked as if the pressure was there. There were a number of factors. The, the, the DUP's competence supply arrangement had obviously come to an end because of the election. The parties, Sinn Féin and DUP, didn't do well the 2019 election. It was clear that if there wasn't going to be an agreement, there might be an election in which they would do badly in Northern Ireland. So that was a risk for both of those parties. And then just before Christmas, we had a major crisis about the NHS. And that, I think, was possibly the, the, the tipping factor, which was the patience of the uh, Northern Ireland population with the failure to take decisions on key administrative issues like pay for nurses was starting to cause really serious alienation from the political system. So while it would be too much to say that people expected power sharing to be put up again, we are long in the tooth about the talks and of the potential for those to fail. I think it was definitely true that the, the pressure, particularly on the DUP and Sinn Féin, to actually shift their position that they'd held for the last three years uh, was fairly strong immediately after the election. Um, Sam, do you think uh, just you share that analysis that there was sort of mounting public pressure on the politicians to say, you know, we need to be governed from here? 
Yes, and I think it was it was actually starker than that. It wasn't even just that people were saying we need to be governed from here. We need to be governed full stop. We've had three years with with no alternative. And um, I, I think that the really transformative point was the early early December general election. Um, that was not just bad for the DUP in Northern Ireland, where they lost their very capable deputy leader, Nigel Dodds, in North Belfast, but obviously completely removed the uh, very significant um power which they had at Westminster in propping up the government, that immediately went. And alongside that, they were facing this um, mounting concern about the state of the health service. We were being told that people were literally dying in Northern Ireland um, because of um, untaken decisions, because there was no minister. People were were living in agony. Um, we have got by far the worst waiting lists for um, treatment in Northern Ireland for serious, um, m- many serious conditions. And so therefore that happened. Then we had, as Duncan said that we had these health strikes, which were around issues that fundamentally had to be resolved by ministers. I mean, it would be um, deeply problematic, I think, if civil servants were with no democratic authority, um, and Julian has alluded to this, um, where we're deciding that we've got this pot of money, we've got people in agony and people literally dying in hospitals because they cannot be treated. We've got this pot of money, it should go to health um, workers as an increase in their salaries rather than, for instance, go to the private sector to pay to treat some of these people. I mean, that that is a a fundamentally and a profoundly political decision. And so therefore, the longer this went on, the more impossible it became. And I think also both these two big parties, DUP and Sinn Féin, had ultimately exhausted all their options. Sinn Féin had no alternative to going back into Stormont as a form of ruling Northern Ireland. Yes, they want a united Ireland, but even they accept that's not going to happen in the next six months. And so Therefore, that doesn't solve the immediate difficulties that we have. And likewise for the DUP, not only had they lost their influence at Westminster, but even before that, with something like abortion, which is very important to a lot of their supporters, they had been unable to stop those things happening at Westminster. And so therefore where once direct rule had seemed quite attractive to some of them, it suddenly became clear that direct rule might deliver things that they really did not want. And I think what, what, one of the interesting things here, and I, I'm not sure if Julian can shed any light on this, but is whether there was a serious threat in January or February um, of this year that if they didn't go back into Stormont, they were facing the electorate again, because that I think really would have alarmed some of those parties. We're going to come on to Julian in a second to ask him actually, how does he get the deal over the line? But I just want to go to Anne. Anne, we've Talked a lot about the health service. It's very striking to those of us used to English waiting time figures just to see how much worse the performance in Northern Ireland was. It's strikingly worse than any of the other nations of the UK. But what else was in the sort of in-tray? We talk a bit about deep-seated, long-standing problems. David Sterling last year, when we spoke to him, came to speak at the Institute for Government, mentioned the risk that Northern Ireland faced sort of stagnation and decay. So what was... What were the other big issues that went untackled in this hiatus? So, um, thanks, Jill. In the, so, in the absence of the executive, the civil service was continuing to run. Northern Ireland, according to the policy direction set by the executive before it collapsed, but that meant there could be no changes in policy or responses to events or new issues. So, there was no progress on public service reform despite the dire need, and you and several of the speakers have already talked about the waiting lists in health. Um, So there's a dire need for public service reform um, in health in other areas as well. There's also little accountability for the civil service during this time. There are no ministers. There's no assembly in place to hold them to account and to scrutinise. Westminster was only legislating on um, devolved matters where it was completely unavoidable, so things like budget issues and setting rates. But that left many important and urgent issues unlegislated for, for example, uh, the leading example being compensation for victims. There are a whole other, there's a whole raft of other examples of poor outcomes that go beyond health and social care, many of which are long-standing issues that predated the three-year absence of an executive. But certainly they weren't being helped by there being no government in place. So things like low levels of skills, low productivity, one quarter of adults being economically inactive, one in four children growing up in poverty, a big attainment gap in education in terms of um, children's attainment at GCSE. So there were a number of key immediate decisions not being made. There was public service reform not happening, but also the cumulative effect of long-standing underlying problems that were just not getting any focus. So that's quite an unattractive intray for sort of politicians to to come into. Um, to sort of address, but 
I'm very interested in Amphelion. Uh, Sam suggested one reason why the politicians might have decided in January we might as well go for it. I just wondered if you could talk us through how you got your deal over the line and what you think the critical elements of new decade, new approach, that's the name that this sort of new uh, new agreement to bring the power sharing executive had. Uh, what were the critical elements in that that, uh, that you thought were particularly important, not just to get the executive up and running, but perhaps to ensure that it st- stuck around this time? Well, I think we've discussed, um, and Sam's mentioned that, that, and others have mentioned the health crisis, which was really uh, critical. Um, I got quite involved in that crisis, and people were trying to um, urge me to, as Secretary of State, use um, Section 28, I think, powers to intervene. But I, I was determined not to, because I think any intervention in something like that health crisis from London would have then led into direct rule. But that was a a key point, and that was where there was huge support from voters. And as um, Duncan's mentioned, that the election, <clears throat> the alliance, and SDLP did did well from that anger on the doorstep. There were other issues. I mean, Sam did this um, incredible book on behaviour in uh, in in the executive, and I think you know this group of people were being paid, uh, continued to be paid for three years, and then this book comes out, really showing a a very unfavourable side of how they did their business. And uh, I think that combined with people on waiting lists and the health crisis, then on the issue of the election, we were determined to have an election. So then that we had to focus people on the 13th of January, politicians on the 13th of January, because they'd already had December and they had to make a bet on, you know, did they want to take um, the risk at the ballot box of the election under the Executive Formation Act? We had to call you know, on the on the 13th. We were also, uh, I'd launched a review of MLA pay because that was uh, another uh, real bugbear, people like Sylvia Herman and then, you know, other, uh, lots of uh, Northern Ireland citizens very angry about, about that. I think it's worth just going back to the Brexit point, Jill, because uh, one of my big pushes in October was to make the case for a deal. I mean, we managed to do that. And the Prime Minister managed to do that. Uh, but I think once that uh, trajectory was was set, and also the general election, um, you know, some of the issues, and and also the absence of the uh, confidence supply agreement, some of the issues that had been percolating away disappeared in in terms of the short term issues and power, the desire for politicians to have a seat at the table to hold power became more important. What was hugely surprising for me was that people, uh, politicians in all waited for three years uh, and held out for three years, uh, really against the will of, of, of uh, the people. In terms of the NDNA, uh, I think it's a, a good deal. It was a deal that we pitched uh, without full agreement. The f- format of that deal had been ongoing in through um, you know, the, the, the two or three years that there'd been talks negotiation. But we've done a lot of accelerated work in December and then January. Uh, and, you know, there are important elements that I think do need to be now uh, set in place and are important for the for the future. We'll maybe come on to them. But uh, they did set uh, some new standards in terms of transparency and what happens if one party wants to collapse the executive. Um, it looked at how could we look at a, um, a more independent economic policy through the fiscal council and through reforms of planning and other other areas it dealt with these issues of the Irish language act and a balancing act for Ulster Scots which at the time were critical uh, to getting the agreement but which now look pretty small scale in terms of all of the things that need to be dealt with um, but I think that deal tried to address the historic issues that had been there for, for some time uh, and has placed them clearly in front of the politicians. But now those, you know, after we've gone through COVID, we will need to be delivered because I think each of those, for each of the parties that got, took the jump in January, we're, we're, each of those policies are very important. Duncan, what did you think was interesting? Uh, you mentioned a bit about the sort of taking this Irish language act problem off the table, uh, perhaps going back to some of the legacy stuff in earlier agreements. What did you think was really interesting in the new decade, new approach? Well, the new decade, new approach was another, if you like, comprehensive document setting out a lot of aspirational things, uh, which at least after the three years of hiatus 
seemed to suggest that there was at least a recognition that, for example, on health, there had to be some change, that language disagreements couldn't hold everything up as they had really for a long period alongside the Brexit issue. And so there was this sense of momentum. And there were a lot of commitments there. But I mean, I think you need to be very clear that by 2019, the Northern Ireland executive was running serious risks, that it was simply marked by series of very serious things, which suggested uh, that there was up to corruption in relation to the RHI, but certainly very bad practice. There was um, some degree of uh, incompetence in relation to health service and sectarianism was still a real issue. So I suppose it was, we'll start again, we'll give it a go. Uh, The language provisions were a compromise and there were a number of other uh, commitments around health and around uh, a programme for government which would be co-designed. And I think uh, it might have had a chance. COVID has certainly knocked the whole timetable into a complete and the whole approach into something else. So we will have to see what remains of it once we get into the recovery phase from COVID. I think that is the honest appraisal of where we are now. Um, Sam, you've written a lot about the RHI scandal. Um, did you think when you looked at New Decade, New Approach, actually, this is going to mean that the executive finally has to face up to some of the problems that were revealed in your book and in the inquiry? You might just give us a one sentence guide to the RHI uh, scandal for those that haven't read your book, though I highly recommend it. That's that's a quite a challenge. I mean, there's lots of uh, astonishing detail in this story, and but behind that sat much broader themes, which which have not entirely been addressed at all by this deal. Um, they could not be addressed by this deal. I mean, ultimately, this comes down to how individuals behave and whether they're incentivized in certain ways to behave better. But really, what 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 this scandal showed was a culture of impunity, um, not just in politics, where some people might say um, quite cynically that they would expect that, but within the civil service, and it basically meant that people did not fear failure. Um, because they did not expect to be held accountable for failure. So they they, they had seen um, colleagues fail and get promoted. They had seen politicians fail and seal on and get promoted. And on top of that, there was this culture of extreme secrecy. And this this is not the sort of refusing to answer FOI requests that you will get in lots of democracies. This was something of a completely different magnitude. This was from permanent secretary down, uh, a de facto civil service policy of deliberately not recording minutes of meetings, not recording who, in some cases, even took multi-million pound major decisions because that might embarrass the civil servants political masters and they were quite open at the inquiry as to why they did this and you also had this lack of specialist expertise in the civil service where people with arts degrees like me um, were running energy policy despite knowing nothing about energy um, and they then had uh, were really given the runaround not just by individuals who were installing these biomass boilers who were burning to earn who were in some cases allegedly heating empty sheds because it paid them to do that um, but also they were um, facing a situation where Northern Ireland's biggest company, Moy Park, which supplies much of the uh, chicken on supermarket shelves across the UK, was making a small fortune, in fact, quite a large fortune out of this scheme. And civil servants didn't even realise this. They, 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 they didn't even know this. They, they, so, they so badly understood their own scheme. And so therefore, you, you'd really this catastrophic situation where both in politics and in the bureaucracy, there was incompetence and much worse. And as Duncan has said, there are very serious allegations of corruption, which ultimately the public inquiry said were not well-founded, um, but enormous public concern and a reputational damage to Northern Ireland and to the Stormont system. So, Anne, I'm interested in your take on New Decade, New Approach. I mean, Sam's made some big charges, some of which, it has to be said, would also apply to the UK civil service about generalist running specialist programmes and things like that. So it's not entirely just a Northern Ireland civil service uh, problem, but interested in whether you thought there were changes in New Decade, New Approach that uh, held out the prospect of better government in the future in Northern Ireland. Um, Yeah, I think just to go back to Julian's point about the money, I think one of the really odd things about this deal is that the money wasn't agreed at the same time as the deal. And that obviously was a negotiating tactic that worked really well um, on the part of the two governments. But it has become a problem later on because uh, immediately the finance minister was going back to the treasury and saying this this money isn't sufficient i think one of the um one of the uh, maybe heartening things about new decade written new approach and duncan mentioned this is the the recognition in that document of the public service challenges in northern ireland whether you're talking about health and social care or education or infrastructure or uh, justice 
there was a there was a really broad range of commitments, a huge scale of ambition in New Decade, New Approach about uh, issues that clearly needed to be addressed, not just because of the three years without government, but because often they were problems that had been long standing before that. So it was an encouraging document in some way in in its breadth and its ambition, but at the same time it immediately left uh, many people with question marks. First of all about how it was going to be paid for. Secondly, the capacity to deliver across such a huge range of reforms in parallel, the capacity of the Northern Ireland Civil Service and the executive executive to deliver all of that. Um, and, and also, you know, how, how, how is that actually going to happen in practice? And I, and I note that we're still waiting for a programme for governments from the executive setting out even the first steps of what they're going to do towards. And that would be within three months, wasn't it? I think the programme for government was supposed to be published three months after the executive. Yes, that's right. And it, and it, it, it hasn't it hasn't appeared. And um, I'm not aware of any timetable. I understand that uh, officials have been moved to work on to issues to do with COVID, which is obviously completely under, understandable. But it does mean we now have an executive that doesn't actually have an agreed set of outcomes that it's working towards, which for uh, for for a government that has lacked a common purpose is a, a very concerning situation. Now, Julian, I've got the impression this may be unfair for a new decade, new approach, that there was a slightly sort of uh, impression from the Northern Ireland office, from the British government, that um, there'd been agreements before to restore power sharing, Stormont House, Fresh Start, and quite a lot of the commitments that had been made to get the executive back up and running hadn't actually been delivered. That uh, And that you were proposing a sort of slightly more hands-on, supervised return. Do you think that's an un- unfair comment uh, to make sure actually that some of the changes really did happen this time round? I think that the uh, th- there was an intention to move from that agreement into a series of um structures to uh, make sure it was delivered. So we had the all party, the five party leaders meetings that were due to be regular. I think the second one happened last weekend after a fairly big uh, uh, crisis uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, There was the policy of having um, a a executive uh, board meeting between the Secretary of State and the First and Deputy First Minister to uh, look at the spending and look at the conditions that the Treasury has put around uh, the spending. Um, So, yes, the answer is it was planned to be um, fairly hands-on, but the the realities of being hands-on are constitutionally, uh, the UK government has got a a limited um, uh, power in uh, Northern Ireland in a whole range of areas. So my intention was to be actively involved but you know that had to be by uh, you know by by consent, and you know I think that um, the discussion, the, the points Anne made were, were were very valid. This agreement contains, I would argue, all of the main components to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement uh, lives well into the the, the coming decade. But um, it does need prioritisation. The programme of government, uh, as, as Anne's alluded to does need to be agreed. There is a shopping list of priorities which this group of people need to redefine and look at in granular detail on you know, what, what are their priorities. You know, there is a lot of work to be done to ensure that um, there's, there's agreed positions. And I think the biggest thing I would be kind of worrying about at the moment is, I mean, we'll hopefully talk about the, the positives and there's lots of them, but are we going to see the same thing that kept this group of politicians away from power for three years now as it comes to prioritising in the best interest of Northern Ireland citizens? And citizens, There need to be decisions made. And over and above all the constitutional debates, those decisions are pretty uh, day-to-day, pretty focused on people's lives, uh, but there will need to be uh, focus. And I think there's lots of reasons uh, you know, that there haven't been. But now uh, I think there needs to be a, a full focus on what are the priorities and then obviously coming to to Westminster to talk about how those will be paid for. Let's let's just move on, because obviously, you know, there were lots of sort of good intentions when the executive was set up and running. Um, 
but there was only a brief period sort of pre-COVID. I'm really interested to get our uh, panellists who are on the ground in Northern Ireland to give us some feel for how do they think the executive has risen to the challenge of uh, responding to COVID. It's had this slightly difficult thing with the UK government very often acting as the English government. It's, it's got better about remembering that it's acting as the English government, uh, taking decisions. But then the Irish government obviously acting in ways that it have implications in Northern Ireland because it's all one island. And that is the border that people will probably cross more readily, particularly in time of COVID. Sam, how do you think the uh, executive's been functioning over the longer run? We know about uh, last week's problems, but over the sort of COVID period since March, have you been surprised by, uh, by how relatively effectively they've responded? Well, I think if we if we go back to even before COVID happened, um, by not agreeing the money in this deal, um, while that was a, a piece of brilliant politics by the NIO and by Julian and by those who were involved in that, um, it got things off to a very bad start in Belfast because they had this wish list in the deal and they were telling the public we're going to do all these wonderful things and that's why you're going to support us to go back in. But very quickly, it became clear that it wasn't really a deal. It was a deal in name, but parties were distancing themselves from all manner of aspects of what was in the deal. Um, and then they were saying, even if we wanted to do this, we don't have the money to do this. So I think it it got them over the line, but it did not in any way resolve lots of these issues, um, which have been, I suppose, pushed back even further now by COVID. And so when you when you come into the COVID period, um, at the start, the executive was really pretty shambolic. Um, there was a period where they were, they were starting to look quite serious. And then we had Michelle O'Neill as the deputy first minister going on to the major political programme on television in Northern Ireland, The View, um, on BBC Northern Ireland, and denouncing the health minister, saying that in my administration, the health minister, I'm paraphrasing her here, but um, he, he's not doing enough. He's not taking this seriously enough. He's slavishly following London. Then further on in the crisis, we had Mary Lou Macdonald, the Sinn Féin president, saying quite openly that she saw that this um, as a pandemic could be a greater catalyst for a united Ireland than Brexit. Um, and that, I think, was the point at which Sinn Féin and sort of reached its its peak um, hubris, if you like, around this. Um, it went too far. There was a backlash against that. And from then on, things have been much smoother. There has been a sense of the parties getting down, working together, and um, trying to keep the politics out of this. That, of course, all fell apart last week when we had this um, massive funeral for a major IRA and Sinn Féin figure called Bobby Story, the former director of intelligence for the IRA, where the rules were wantonly broken, openly broken, in full public view. Um, Michelle O'Neill was there. Connor Murphy, the finance minister, was there. They have, um, in many ways, in, in, in a sort of Trumpian way, tried to say that what we saw with our eyes didn't happen, that they didn't break their own rules. And so you've got the sort of Dominic Cummings type situation where they're setting the rules, they are saying, you must do this, they're lecturing other people who don't do it. They're then seen not to do that, and that has fatally undermined the executive's ability to have any sort of coherent message around this issue. Uh, Duncan, is that uh, your reading of how that it was actually going relatively well after a slightly shaky start, uh, being well, thrown uh, by last week's events? I think as Sam described it, that's really the event picture. I would put for the executive that when it came to actually managing COVID, they have appeared more competent than at any other time, possibly since the uh, devolution of power in 2007, let alone new decade, new approach. And that largely seems to be because they stopped having the public spats they started to see that it was popular, I think, that they were making some progress in Northern Ireland compared to Britain. And there, there seems to be a sense that we're adopting most of the approach of Ireland without it turning into a nationalist issue. On the other hand, as Sam has outlined in some detail there, the potential from, for issues within the executive for the unresolved tensions around either money or, as in the case of the funeral, in terms of the way uh, nationalist issues, um, and that can be unionist or nationalist, interfere with uh, the other uh, administrative parts of government is still there. And that, as Julian intimated, it is possible that we will, in a sense, go quickly back because we're moving straight into a crisis over Brexit. So all of these things are uh, still on the table and unresolved, I would say, at this point. And um, Yeah, so I think um, if we look at how the executive has handled COVID, I think comparing to the rest of the UK, it seems to have handled it reasonably well if you look at outcomes, with some exceptions, and some of those have already been mentioned. Um, the Northern Ireland Executive 
has many problems in heart functions, but it does actually have a history of handling emergency situations quite well. It's not very good at strategic planning for the longer term, but a crisis situation like COVID has given it a focus on a common goal, which doesn't have an immediately obvious constitutional dimension, although I suppose uh, we've been, all of us, perhaps surprised by how our constitutional dimension has come into it. Um, just a few points about how the executives handle COVID. Northern Ireland's outcomes are uh, better than the rest of the UK if you look at death rates. And my observation of it would be that the executive has, in many cases, demonstrated impressive unity in response to COVID. It's had this common purpose of fighting fighting the disease and common purpose is something the executive has lacked in the past. That There's been less criticism and, and fewer fractures than we might have seen in the past. Ministers with different responsibilities have done their roles effectively and largely without criticism from others from others. There's been there's been on the whole, with exceptions, there's been good, clear leadership from the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister. Um, Robin Swan as the Ulster Unionist Party Health Minister, which incidentally is a position the two main parties did not choose to take when the ministerial positions were chosen in January. He's done a, a, a steady, solid job through the crisis. And you've got the ministers from the small, smaller parties in the executive holding health, infrastructure and justice roles, and they haven't been sidelined in the way that they might have been in the past. There have been some exceptions as, as we've talk, talked about it, but I think looking on it, optimistically and positively. The executive, I hope, has built some strength as a unit and has perhaps built stronger relationships which can be used in the future. I think it's really interesting as well to see how the executive has defined its own approach to COVID in many cases, particularly on how lockdown has been eased. So we we mentioned before about following UK policy or following the policy in the Republic. And actually, particularly in the period thinking about how to ease lockdown. The executive has really uh, made its own, it's forged its own path, it's made its own decisions. There have been relaxations of lockdown according to the medical scientific evidence in Northern Ireland, which have happened earlier than they haven't, they've happened elsewhere in the UK. Um, so there hasn't been quite the same slavish following of UK policy or indeed um mirroring of policy in the Republic that there might have been in the past. It, it does feel in some ways because Northern Ireland has had relative success in dealing with COVID, it's perhaps been able to make more of its own decisions. Um, and I think the executive has shown some increased maturity and independence in that compared to what we've seen before. So, Anne, do you think that's going to translate? And we've got a question from Lauren Pennycook from the Carnegie UK Trust about how this will sort of throw forward into the recovery plan, uh, which will also then have to be integrated from the still outstanding programme for government. Do you get a sense that ministers are going to find it as easy to work that out? We've seen before lack of really collective decision making, real difficulties about making, choosing priorities when uh, there isn't enough money to go around. Do you think we're going to throw that forward? Obviously, the big economic decisions, the economic framework is being set uh, as for the rest of the UK by the Chancellor, but there's a lot of local decision-making that will need to go into that as well. So I suppose the hope would be that the, uh, I suppose the relationships that have been built and uh, across the executive and the, uh, the role that the individual departments and the individual ministers have taken uh, individually and collectively, you would hope that in that effort to tackle COVID, they can then take that forward as they think about tackling the much longer and bigger challenge of the economic recovery from, from, from COVID. That would be the optimistic view, I think, given events over the past week that may be far too hopeful. I think we, as we think about recovery, what we need to see is the executive focusing on the recovery in the same way as it's focused on tackling COVID with that unity of purpose. Um, and that, that focus on addressing the immediate economic impact of COVID, but also 
the fact that we have the, the long tail of the underlying economic problems that we've had for years. And in fact, it's the it's the groups who are most badly affected by COVID who are the ones who are in the weakest position to start with economically. So we're talking about young people, people with low skills, people and low incomes. They're the ones who are going to be hardest hit from COVID and they're the ones who really need our economic recovery plan. I think this question mentions the programme for government and that comes back to what we were talking about before. There is no programme for government at the minute. COVID has obviously gotten away and that's a significant excuse. But here we are four months into the financial year and we don't have an agreed set of outcomes. That is the common vision the executive's working towards. And I think that's really concerning. Julian, if you were still Secretary of State, would you be uh, be trying to persuade the executive to be thinking a bit longer term as we move into I think what the chance describes as phase two, perhaps looking forward to phase three? And so you really do need to start thinking about that programme for government? Well, I'm going to just speak as a backbench MP, Jill, and, you know, I uh, um, would really just reiterate what I've said about prioritising uh, what is in the best interests of, of Northern Ireland, because um, the, uh, the, there is so much to, to do, as people have, uh, have mentioned, um, and, you know, that I think the programme for government can be uh, joined with the recovery plan, and the UK government will be responsive, in my view, to... Uh, reasonable propositions uh, from the Northern Ireland Executive to uh, deliver um, on the economy. We've also got a commitment from the UK government to have a Brexit deal financially once this, um, once we get the new FTA arranged, and that's in the uh, new decade, new approach. So there are lots of opportunities um, there. But I think this issue of um, how the executive has dealt with COVID is worth uh, looking at. It's been a broadly phenomenal job. I mean, to think, I, I took my team out uh, to Hillsborough on New Year's Day. I wasn't popular at all to try and get these talks going and no party would uh, come and meet us. I think we had, maybe the Ulster Unionists brought some of their members and but we, we got no traction in the holiday period. And from a, a phase where the parties were only talking really through the governments, uh, we now had them dealing with this biggest crisis Northern Ireland has seen in decades and dealing with it well. So how is that? How do you build upon that? And you've alluded and alluded to the role of the smaller parties. Nicola Mallon has done a really good job. Robin's done a great job. Naomi's done a great job. Uh, but Arlene and Michelle have worked closely together. Uh, and I think there just needs to be a, a, a huge focus on uh, how much time, how, much, how many off-sites meetings, discussions are take place during the summer to set up the priorities. I'd like to see them working over the summer. Uh, you're obviously having a holiday, but doing work in August, going off uh, together, going through the priorities, uh, having support. So all the things that Sam has uh uh, focused on in terms of special advisors, uh, how you make decisions are so important to actually whether this executive can build up from this very positive uh, uh, conduct uh, that it's that that it's undertaken during COVID. Um, but if we just wait till September, everybody's off for six weeks. Everybody hopes these decisions are going to come out of the ether somehow. I think there will be problems. So I think everybody needs to support them in uh, putting together a recovery plan and a programme for government. Um, but, you know, it will need a shift in behaviour from where we were in January. And I think we've seen quite a lot of that shift in, in how they dealt with COVID. I want to come on to Brexit as the other thing. I mean, I think that's very interesting on keeping up the momentum, if you like, particularly working through August. Um, the one thing lots of people I know are noticing is just how exhausted people inside governments are. So getting a holiday also important. Uh, Northern Ireland's got to prepare for its particular form of Brexit, the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, a responsibility both of the UK government but also of the executive. And again, quite a difficult issue for the executive to deal with. Got to a couple of questions about uh, about the scope for eliminating friction, uh, movements of goods between GB and NI from Graham Steele, and also about the potential assessment uh, that might have been made or not from Keith Strudley of the impact of the UK and the EU uh, ending up with no free trade agreement 
obviously the Northern Ireland Protocol sustains. Sam, how much concern is there in Northern Ireland itself about the progress on implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol? I mean, there there is a latent concern about Brexit, um, which which has been there since the vote for Brexit. But I think that over recent months, COVID has completely knocked this out of the public consciousness. Um, even for businesses who were probably the most immediately concerned about what this meant for them, because at the very outset they they will face the most direct impact. It's it's now a far more immediate crisis with the pandemic than with something which is still at at, at least several months away if there is no extension. And so, therefore, I think um, that that has just just by um by necessity got relegated um, there's only so much bandwidth that that any of these individuals or um, systems of a government have yes there is still work ongoing there um, but it, it, it is completely um, beneath um, what, what what is now happening in, in, in terms of a level of priority but I think that also what we have seen um, over the last few months from the executive insofar as they have dealt with brexit has been that they really have no position on it or they have um, no coherent position on it and some people said during the three years that we did not have stormment um, what does this mean if only we had Stormont, Northern Ireland's voice could be better represented. And of course, in a democratic sense, that's absolutely correct. There would have been a mandate for um, for a for a for a Stormont position, um, which the civil service could could not articulate. But I think what we've seen here is that actually the DUP say one thing, Sinn Féin say another, Alliance say another, um, and there there is this fundamental ideological split on this issue. And so therefore the executive does not really speak on this issue. But there, there is this then growing difficulty of the executive will have to implement parts of this. And so Edwin Poots, the DUP agriculture minister, is going to have a role in terms of the ports. And whatever way we, we describe this, it is going to be some sort of quasi-border. Um, and he is going to have to in some way authorize the implementation of that. So there is a crunch point coming here where for a DUP minister who profoundly disagrees with that constitutionally, does he decide to go ahead with that? Does he dig his heels in? That is coming. But at this point, I think it's very much in the background. So one of the things that was an interesting part of the Boris Johnson version of the Northern Ireland Protocol, not in Theresa May's and not in the original EU proposition, was this idea that every four years, uh, the Assembly would get to vote on whether it wanted to continue with the protocol or whether it would opt out uh, and effectively uh, reinstate a hard border in the island of Ireland. How worried, and Duncan, I'll start with you again, how worried are people in Northern Ireland that this means that this issue doesn't sort of go away? It's going to be looming over Northern Irish politics, a potentially destabilising influence in time to come. Well, nobody can rule that out because, in a sense, it can always be turned into some kind of referendum on the constitution, and that the potential for that to destabilize other issues—the kind of issues we were talking about earlier, the administrative and and practical, pragmatic policy issues that need to be addressed—will uh, be, in a sense, totally driven off course. So that is a real potential. On the other hand, it is possible that the nature of the deal and the relationship settles down and that it is less controversial than it appears, and that the, 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 the gap that could emerge between whether Brexit is extremely, if you like, antagonistic, or whether Brexit turns into something which can be managed by all sides makes a very big difference in Northern Ireland, and that vote, that every four-year vote, will take place in that context. So I suppose the answer to your question is, it is obviously a potential issue. The other hidden issue, of course, is we have to hope that the stability of the Northern Ireland Assembly is now assured and that that body does exist every four years. So there is a there are a series of question marks which Brexit puts it. The one thing I would say, however, is that Brexit changed a little bit the political landscape in Northern Ireland. The uh, previous idea that there was a majority unionist population with a uniform view certainly was not the case in Brexit. And so when it comes to Brexit questions, the, uh, the the basis on which the Assembly is constructed is different to the divisions that exist in Northern Ireland society. I think the recent Life and Times survey suggested that there was a bit of sort of move back towards more identity politics in Northern Ireland after a sort of period when there was growing sort of neither. It, it, uh, it's, it, that's certainly a complex question because the uh, Life and Times survey was carried out at the same time as uh, during the autumn. And the general election in 2019 demonstrated that actually there are now really three groups in Northern Ireland, none of which commands an overall majority. There are nationalist parties, there are unionist parties, 
And then there is a substantive group of people, probably mostly previously unionists or young voters, who are now uh, definitely and consistently in 2019 voting for either the Alliance Party, the Green Party, the uh, some of the SDLP possibly. And I think that that does make a difference because on Brexit, they tend to align more independently. And Sam, we had a question from Stuart Wood, Lord Wood of Anfield, I think he is, about the impact of Sinn Féin now being the official opposition in the Republic and what impact that would have with them playing that role in this, yeah, in the Republic but being part of the executive in Northern Ireland. Do you think that's going to destabilise? It's a very good question, and I think, honestly, none of us really know the answer to this yet because it's it's never happened before. But Sinn Féin has been a very significant force in the Republic for several years now. There has been incredible focus within Sinn Féin on protecting their position politically in the South because they um, really were so dominant in the North that, 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 bluntly, they really didn't need to think too much about what happened up here. And so, therefore, I think while it could be a, a complicating factor, it could slow down decision-making in Stormont because they're worried that doing something in, in, in the North will then look bad in the South because it will contradict what they're saying in opposition to the government there. Um, It could also, on another level, be a stabilising factor because what is politically acceptable in Northern Ireland, the sort of events of last week with a major um, funeral for an IRA man which broke all sorts of um, government guidance, that is acceptable to many of their voters in Northern Ireland. They don't bat an eyelid about that. It's not acceptable to a lot of people in the South who potentially might vote for Sinn Féin. And so therefore, I think there will be a tension within Sinn Féin between the North and the South it's not quite as straightforward as that. There are other fault lines there. Um, but I think that, that that could go one one of two quite different ways. Okay, that's a very good on the one hand, on the other hand, answer. Quite interesting the sort of future relationship between the restored institutions in the north, the UK government, and the government of Ireland. We have a question from Oliver Quinton in Belfast. Thank you, Oliver, sending that in pointing to the whole range of issues created under the Good Friday Agreement, the uh, North-South Ministerial Council, the British-Irish Council, Joint Ministerial Committee, quite a long list of things. I wonder whether we'd really use those enough. There, Obviously, some of them were in abeyance um, while there was no executive. Julian, do you think those are a useful set of, uh, set of institutions? And what would be your advice to your successor on how much use they should make. You clearly worked very closely with Simon Coveney to get a new new decade, new approach over the line. So I reiterate, I'm speaking as a backbench MP, and I'm not giving advice to uh, my successor, but I think that these uh, institutions are crucial. The big thing about January was the restoration uh, of all of the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement, and that's really important, I think, for us to... Um, hang on to and celebrate because there was no other landing zone in my view direct rule um, or you know other you know the priorities of Sinn Féin none of these areas was was their uh, support for so the GFA is really uh, where the action is still but a big part of that are these institutions that you've talked about and which now need to really live and thrive and show Results. There's lots of things that they can do. We talked about this in the New Decade, New Approach Agreement. Climate change. Climate change uh, can uh, be done on an all-island basis through um, these bodies. There's huge amounts that can be done there. Some of the economic work on north-south transportation uh, and and other issues can be dealt with um, through these uh, bodies. Uh, And there's a huge role and and an important role for these bodies uh, as Britain comes out of the EU because uh, we do need to make sure that the relationship uh, between the North and the Republic is managed in a positive way so we continue to uh, you know, get inward investment uh, into the North but maintain this good relationship um, with, the, with the South. So I think these are absolutely at the centre of things and I think they've got to transform from you know, being uh, talking shops to having a focus on results. What are the priorities of these GFA institutions for the next 12 months? How can parties agree to uh, what the what is a good outcome from them? Uh, and uh, I think that will have support from the UK government. It will have support from the EU. Uh, and there's lots of opportunities to lever um, money uh, and um, goodwill uh, in, through these institutions to support uh, the economy and society in Northern Ireland. 
So I want to, we're moving towards the end now, but I just want to end up by going round the panel and just asking them whether they are optimistic, given the challenges that Northern Ireland faces, that the executive will endure and will actually start to get a handle on some of these long, deep-seated challenges in Northern Ireland and that the you know, various sort of elements in New Decade, New Approach will, will help uh, bolster the stability, better collective decision-making, some of the issues we've raised here or whether there are so many big challenges coming down that, uh, that we ought to look forward to a further very bumpy ride. Anne, uh, sitting there in Pivotal, do you think that you're optimistic that uh, actually there are prospects that we're going to deal with some of the challenges, some of the reforms that were identified in that very long uh, RHI report, um, some of the problems we've been talking t- today about public service reform? Uh, once we're the other side of COVID, whenever that might be, do you think that actually we're set fair to see Northern Ireland get start to get to grips with some of these problems? I would be optimistic. Um, are we set fair? Uh, no, I don't think we are at the minute. I think we need to see some key things happen. I think we need the programme of programme for government that we talked about. We need the executive to have a common set of goals. And that needs to be ambitious and serious about starting to address the long-standing economic and social problems we, we're facing in Northern Ireland. Um, there is no PFG. It isn't in place four months into the financial year. That's really urgent. Um, and it, it needs to be uh, serious about the, the underlying issues that, that Northern Ireland faces. Um, as part of that, the executive needs to start to govern for the, the longer term, not just this electoral period or even worse, just this financial year. We need government that has a, a long-term vision and ambition for the future that commits to serious and sustained action to address these deep-rooted problems like low skills and productivity, predominance of low-paid jobs, and the big gap we have in educational attainment between different social groups. And really importantly, we need the executive to start making difficult decisions about public service reform. Northern Ireland has a history of just spending more on public services rather than investing in transforming them for the future. The, the example we're always citing and we've talked about today is health and social care, where there have been numerous reports, but a lack of real action because of the unpopular decisions involved. But if public services are going to be delivered in the future within ever limited budgets, particularly post-COVID, the executive needs to start fronting up to these tough decisions about transformation for the future. So, yes, I would be optimistic. I would be hopeful, but I think there's a real change in culture and priorities needed. Um, Julian, I'm going to come to you. It's quite interesting for those of us that are used to the Westminster system with you know, official opposition, accountability, scrutiny, and maybe ministers sort of you know not able to take long-term decisions because they don't know they're going to be in power in years' time. It's obviously different in the power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland. Um, are you optimistic that uh, that we're on a path to better government in Northern Ireland, even in its uh, you know the very unusual form of institutions that we have there? Well, I am positive. I'm wary, but I'm positive, and be, uh, I, you know I don't see any other option. So I think for this generation of politicians, there's no other pathway than the one we're on. And you know I think that um, there are huge uh, opportunities. Um, it's worth, I think, celebrating where where we've got to. After that three years of stasis, you know, we've transformed social uh, rights in Northern Ireland uh, for, for women and girls, for same-sex couples. Uh, we've got the GF institu- GFA institutions back up and running. There's a commitment to deal with the legacy of the past, which, by the way, uh, was uh, in, you know, was, was a demand by uh, various parties during that agreement and which, you know, if, if that can just get done, we'll move things on for the next uh, generation. Um, and, you know, I think there is every opportunity to um, set a plan uh, for the future, but it does need to build, as I said, upon, I think, the sense of working together that took place in COVID. I urge the civil service in Northern Ireland to help this set of politicians you know, with frameworks, with, you know, plans for, you know, the period between now and when the Assembly gets up and running again in September, 
uh, and to help structure things. There's an awful lot of um, sort of professional support that needs to be done to transform, uh, you know, the various priority areas in that agreement that we made in in January. The economy of Northern Ireland, 1.7-ish people, million people, uh, is a huge, uh, hugely a positive size to try out, to innovate, to come up with new uh, ideas in health and education. And I think we need to really look at all of the opportunities. Just talking about um, opposition, uh, we pay tribute to Jim Allister, who uh, is is the opposition, I think, at Stormont, uh, does an amazing job, as well as obviously the backbench MP, MLAs of the different parties. But ultimately, we've also got to celebrate the fact that the United Kingdom has got this incredibly um, uh, powerful success story in uh, this assembly and executive. It's fraught with all sorts of um, uh, odd incentives and uh, strange uh, configurations. But, you know, from where we were when I was a child looking on at the carnage, the death, the destruction in Northern Ireland to where we are now, I think everybody should feel, you know, um, hugely proud of the progress that's been made. And there's a huge opportunity for this generation. And I think if this generation of politicians uh, doesn't take it up, there seems to be some very, very uh, exciting young politicians in the Assembly now who would be quite happy to take the mantle should this current crop uh, fail to do so. Well, that's quite an interesting uh, generational warning, Sam. Your book exposed a lot of shortcomings in the civil service, and you've mentioned that before. Do you think the nettle of civil service reform is being grasped so that if ministers take brave decisions, the civil service can actually execute them, help them make those decisions? I think there's limited evidence of that at this point. Um, and I think what, what RHI exposed was this inherent difficulty really in all devolved um, devolved institutions across the UK, less so in Scotland because they have some tax raising powers. But essentially, how do you make devolved administrations fiscally responsible if they have no fiscal responsibilities beyond just spending somebody else's money? And so there is this culture in Stormont which straddles the civil service, the DUP, Sinn Féin, lots and lots of people. There is a, a degree of unanimity I think about this are certainly close to unanimity that it is a good thing to simply get in as much money from London as possible and if there's a difficulty you go with a begging bowl and you say it's all London's fault you didn't give us enough money we've seen that already since Stormont came back we saw Connor Murphy going to um, to the uh, Treasury saying you haven't given me enough money to fulfill this wish list etc etc and so therefore I think there is some um, more oversight of that in the January deal there were structures put in place there to give the Treasury more say so that something like RHI hopefully can cannot happen again. But that is still a difficulty there that is cultural. And the second difficulty, which you've alluded to there, is the lack of an opposition. Um, I didn't expect to hear Julian Smith pay tribute to Jim Allister in that way. Um, but clearly, to have a, a tiny handful of MLAs who are not in governing parties in a legislature of 90 MLAs is very difficult to explain to um, particularly younger members of the public who don't necessarily understand the way that that was put together in 1998. And so therefore, we, we, we've got this irony that Stormont fell over the exposure of bad practice by an opposition in the brief period since 1972 that we did of an opposition, and yet it came back with less internal scrutiny than it had at the point where it fell. And so therefore, I think there, there, there's still this difficulty that if somebody is unhappy with the government in Northern Ireland, unlike in Dublin, unlike in London, unlike in Paris or New York or anywhere mm. else in the Western world, you can't change your government. You have to topple the whole thing. And that is an inherent difficulty, I think, for us going forward. Okay, so that's... Slightly less optimistic view. One word, Duncan. Uh, prospect that the Northern Ireland Executive will deliver for the communities of Northern Ireland? I have to say I'm probably the, the most sceptical uh, of, <laughs> of the four here. I think most people in Northern Ireland are probably riding two horses at once. There is good language in the new decade, new approach. As everybody said, the COVID experience here has actually been a positive experience. So there's something to build on, and I, that is an optimistic thing. On the other hand, I suppose there's a negative there, which is, is may work positively for us, which is I think the tolerance um, of the Northern Ireland population for no government on the model that we had from 2016 to 2019 is very, very low. So there's a, an electoral threat if there's not an opposition threat to parties which are seen to bring it down. So those things speak for a positive possibility. On the other hand, I mean, the programme for governments uh, 
proposals and New Decade, New Approach spoke about, you know, that the people and communities will have an opportunity to shape the future and the budgets through citizen engagement. There's very little sign of that at the moment. And I'm not sure how that's going to be squared with Anne's need for something very quickly. And I also think that Brexit is a real issue here every time because it always asks questions about the constitutional balance and it is a issue that's immediate for us. So the decisions that are taken with, if you like, the politics of Westminster in mind maybe have very different impacts on Northern Ireland and that is something which all of us will have to pay attention to whether we wish to or not and despite COVID. So that's a sort of, uh, I think, a balanced assessment, some optimism, some grounds for optimism, some notes of concern, but the big news, of course, is that after six months, uh, the executive is still standing uh, and seems to have come through its most recent crisis, and that Northern Ireland is being governed, and that there is distinct possibilities that actually they could sort of collectively come and address some of these longer-term challenges. I'm going to Close it there, but with very many thanks to our excellent panel, Sam McBride and what, what Duncan Morrow and Julian Smith. That was a really fascinating discussion. Can I uh, recommend that people should take a big interest in the government of Northern Ireland? It's an important part of the UK. And just if you're interested in government, it's a fascinating system that was crafted in the Good Friday Agreement uh, to answer some really difficult, long-standing issues. So thank you very much for listening and do remember to listen to other IFG Live podcasts and our regular podcast Inside Briefing. Thanks all very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.